warm word of, of welcome to everybody joining us, some people from around the world, as far as New Zealand, um, for this month's conversation of meaning. Um, my name is Nikki, for those of you that don't know, and I head up the Institute for Creative Conversations in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, we really are a, a collective of practitioners who, who um, work to, to create change through dialogue. And in one of the ways that we do that is we offer training in narrative therapy and practices. Um, so kia ora to Sasha. Um, <laughs> Hi everybody, uh, Sabona, Here we go, on Heritage Day, thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> We're really appreciative of you spending your Friday evening with us um, today. Um, for those who, who might not know, Sasha works as a counsellor at Harbour Hospice in, in Auckland. Um, and has practiced as a narrative therapist for many years. Um, she's worked with and learned from David Epstein and Janella Bird and Tom Carlson, who some of you may remember joining us in, in years past. Um, Sasha, I was wondering how you might feel about sharing with us your special connection to South Africa. I'd love to. Um, hi, everyone. Thank you for coming along. It's really nice to be here with you. Um, I'm lucky enough to be married to Gavin, who uh, grew up in Durban and who um, also went to university in Cape Towns. And uh, our en entire relationship, we've gone back and forth to reconnect with family and friends in South Africa. And also we spend a lot of time in the parks, which we love. Mm, so it's, it's, it's very special for me to be here with you. and. Uh, I was saying to Nikki, um, the way that you speak for me, this is how the people that I love most speak. So <laughs> I hope you can just understand me. <laughs> so if, if, if anybody does struggle, um, you're welcome to just put in the chat box um, and ask um, Sasha to repeat something. But if you like me, she's easy to understand. So it's a great honor to have you with us. Um, we do need to just mention that Sasha's connection, internet connection from New Zealand is, is um, giving us a little, um, the odd problem, the odd glitch here or there, so please bear with us. Um, we will, we'll just continue the conversation. So Sasha, I wonder okay. if I could just start by asking also just to say that you're welcome to put any questions you have for Sasha in the chat line and time allowing we'll get to some of those. You're very welcome to do that. So this, this Wednesday in our, our reading group, we read your article on deconstructing denial. Um, and in that you question the influence of dominant Western ideas that influence our um, relationship with death and dying. And I wondered if you could share a little bit more about that with us. Sure. Uh, and I think perhaps I need to say a couple of things. Um, uh, first, which is that, of course, our relationship with illness and death is culturally constructed. And uh, the ideas that surround me are different from the ideas that surround you. And um, so the way that I think about it might, is just one way that we could think about it. And I'm really interested to hear um, some of your experiences and thoughts about this. Um, and just the other thing, by the by, is um, I do uh, tend to talk in stories. I share a lot of stories when I'm talking about practice. And I'd just like you to know that these uh, stories are told with the permission of the people in them. And they're stories that have moved me and they may move you. So uh, if they do, uh, I'd just like to invite you to take care of yourself where in a very, very hard times at the moment, aren't we? And we're surrounded by death and dying and illness. And um, I think it makes it even more evocative to have such a conversation. So uh, if something uh, does come forward for you that perhaps, uh, or you have some uh, questions or something left over or some wonderings, please don't hesitate to email me. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Um, but just coming back to the, the question, um, 
Well, some of the dominant ideas that have an impact on the people that I meet with at the end of life um, uh, uh, are Western ideas, um, but they're not the only ones. But probably the most common pressure is for people to fight and to be positive. Uh, uh, and um, the pressure to be positive uh, uh, really has a, an enormous effect. I mean, Carla Willard calls uh, the Western idea that we must be positive to be a cultural imperative, in fact. And th th these ideas really shut down people um, often talking about um, their suffering and their mortality, and they can really leave them alone and feeling like they're somehow doing it wrong. And the idea that, you know, we must fight while um, that can be a really helpful idea for some people, particularly when uh, um, they have a curable illness. But when you are living with a life-ending incurable illness, um, it can position people as winning or losing. Um, it's a battle and, you know, we often see um, that somebody's lost their battle and that can be, for some people, unhelpful. Um, so um, I guess what I'm interested in is asking questions that help people to locate their experience within a, a wide terrain of possibility in a, in a way that fits with them. And I use language which um, I guess invites them to... Um, consider many options other than just the um, fighting. So I might say to someone, uh, how do you go about living with this illness? Or um, until I hear their language and what fits for them. And if they, um, if, uh, you know, fighting is, a stance of fighting is something that's very important to them, then, you know, I'm going to inquire into that. And, you know, I'd be curious to know how they go about fighting and, uh, what are they fighting for and um, what's important to them about the fighting. Uh, I think one of the things about narrative therapy is that uh, uh, there isn't a right way. You know, we're, we're, I'm asking questions to explore what's, uh, what matters to you, what's right for you according to your values. I'm not looking to impose uh, on you. Yeah. Um, and, and so what, what's one of the things that I've really enjoyed about all your articles and the way that you, you write and the way that you practice is that people are always seen as so much more than their current situation, their illness, mm. the cancer. Mm. What, what informs mean, that? Well, um, uh, well, narrative therapy holds an idea that people are more than the problems they live with. But I, I, I want to go further than that, you know it makes sense to us doesn't it people are more than the illnesses that they live with and um i i want to get to know people in ways where they experience themselves as more than an illness as worthy of respect and um, as having knowledge and wisdom about their own life i begin conversations where uh, often where i want to get to know people aside from the illness and i might say something like um, People are so much more than the illness that they're living with and their current. Would it be okay if I asked you a little bit about your life and what matters to you? And the people that I meet are generally very interested in doing that. And actually, can I tell you a story about that? Mm. There was a man who was under the care of a hospice team and he was living with a number of diseases. And he was taking a whole lot of um, medication that was unprescribed in a desperate attempt to try and manage his symptoms. And he also was insisting on being resuscitated, even though he was actually within really a couple of weeks of the end of his life. And it was utterly hopeless, you know, much to the distress of his family. And not only that, but he was refusing point blank to talk about dying. And when some of the team um, tried to talk to him about this, because, you know, they're really worried, uh, he, he got angry with them. And so um, they asked me to see him and I went out and saw him and his wife. And I, I asked him that question. I said to him, you know, people are so much more than 
be honestly living with I, I asked him about his life and I discovered that he um uh, what had um I got to know him through uh, what uh, uh, through the stories of his life while listening for expressions of goodness of Aristotelian virtue you know things like um compassion and courage and love and I learned that ambulance even at personal risk that he cared deeply for his family it's a blended family but everybody got along because he was so loving and caring and that really well and their families and he personally bought them Christmas presents so I heard these stories of his life and after an hour he said to me Sasha you get it and I said to him oh what, what, what is it that, that I get and he said you get why I want to live you get why I don't want to die you are going to be my death philosopher and I will talk about dying with you and um and that's what we did and I met him actually a couple of more times before he died very close together as he was so near death and we were able to talk about those things um that you know that people were concerned about and um uh because we'd drawn out these stories of what he cared about most, you know, it, it wasn't difficult to have those conversations. So I, I think this way of carefully and respectfully stepping into people's lives without assuming that we have a right to be there can be very powerful indeed, yeah. What is it like for you on a personal note to to spend so much time with people um, in their last days of, of, of living. Um, I'm thinking particularly of our doctors and the medical professionals right now who are really struggling with, with almost the inability to save people. And so perhaps that ties in with what you said earlier, the, the idea that we have to fight for life. So, um, what is it like for you to to kind of be around death all the time in your working experience? I think my experience is, is very different from what the doctors and nurses who are treating people with COVID are going through. And of course, they are fighting for people's lives because there is hope that um, they can uh, help them. Um, uh, but isn't it interesting they, that when we talk about not fighting, we can so easily move into that binary of you're either fighting or giving up, whereas I'm always interested in how people want to go about the living and uh, what are their priorities, what are they giving weight to, what matters to them, which is outside that binary, isn't it? Um, how is it for me? Do you know, um, many things... Um, when I look around the hospice and, you know, I work with people often, even for as long as a couple of years before they die, what I see is love and action, actually. Um, I, I, I see people who are exhausted because they care so much for someone who is unwell, who are getting up all night. I see people who are suffering but want to protect their family because they love them and don't want to worry them. I see people who are so generous that they're caring for someone, maybe an ex-partner who they don't even like. Um, so for me, it's quite an inspiring place. Um, I, I feel like I see the best of humanity often. Um, that isn't to say that, I mean, there are days when I am sitting with people in those darker spaces, maybe all day. But um, it's, 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 it's a very rich space to share with someone, isn't it? Mm. Uh, and by keeping someone company, by being alongside, by uh, searching for meaning with them, um, I mean, it, it, it not only, we're not only maybe looking to for what gives them a sense of living meaningfully, but it's also meaningful to me too. I think there's tremendous reciprocity in the work and 
Um, I've no doubt that what people have given me will shape my death in ways that are really helpful for me. So I'm grateful. Uh, but I, I, I won't say that it, 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 it I mean, it, of course, it's, um, it's a different kind of a load to carry at times. But um, my overwhelming feeling is one of um, uh, being inspired by people and learning from them, actually. Mm. Mm. Are you ever able to, to give that back to them? What do you, what do you learn from them? <laughs> I, I really try to. <laughs> One of the ways I do is by writing stories with them, which you know some of you might have read. Uh, I was talking today with a woman who's um, survived her husband. He's he died, and he and I wrote a story together. And we were actually just talking about the therapeutic effects of you know what had the story made possible for him and his life and and his work, our work together, but also what had the story made possible for her reading it and for her tiny daughter. So um, I, I hope that um, it was on the page. Um, but yeah, no, if I'm saying that that very same man, you know, I, we said goodbye to each other when I flew out actually to Vermont to go and do a workshop and um, we said goodbye to each other. And yeah, no, I, I, I will, when I'm saying goodbye to someone, I'll, I will share with them what I've learned and my gratitude I mean there's so much reciprocity yeah mm. I'm aware that there's there are quite a number of palliative care um, folk joining us today um, as well as people um, I know that there's some social workers and narrative practitioners could you one of the things you mentioned in in that article on deconstructing denial um, is about caregivers creating spaces for the silenced stories. Could you share with us some of the ways that we could do that? Sorry, I'm creating space for the silenced stories of... Uh, for the silenced stories. I'm not sure quite what I was saying in the bit okay. that you were saying. Sorry, Nikki. I, I think it was for the untold, some of the untold stories. How do we create space for people to share the untold stories uh, um, as, as they're journeying towards death and, and dying? Okay. It's a good question, isn't it? I'm just, I'm just thinking about that because there's, there's, of course, many answers, aren't there? And in fact, it's not one simple one. Um, uh, um, I think for a start off, um, this understanding of our shared humanity is, is for me a cornerstone. That, um, uh, and getting to know people in ways that honour them and respect them and their lives. Uh, you know, if we want to witness and hear stories of suffering, we first need to generate a relationship in which such stories can be told. Um, I think that um, I'm thinking of the, the of of um, actually the man I was speaking to about a minute ago. You know, when we when we enter into another person's world and try and understand what's happening to them in, in terms of the way that they experience it and talk about it to themselves. Um, we can really create room for um, a whole lot of uh, stories that uh, couldn't exist before. And, and I'm just trying to think of a way of um, talking about that. Um, in, in that paper, I. Um, uh, I, I shared a, a story um, of um, a conversation I had with a woman, and this is also in a paper called um, Narrative Therapy with Someone Experiencing Significant Loss, where she, uh, I was asked to go and see this woman because she, uh, we already knew each other, but the nurses were worried because she was refusing to speak about um, her husband's deteriorating condition. He was um, getting sicker and sicker, and she was stopping people assessing him and talking about what they were finding. And of course, you know, um, the nurses were worried about her. And um, I went out and saw her and 
she said to me that um, she'd actually had a good week and that she was feeling uh, hopeful. And I guess by asking her what the hope was for her, it allowed us to have a completely different conversation. Because when I asked her about this hope, she said to me, it is only a small hope. Uh, it is a hope for him to live another day or maybe a couple of days. So I think when we enter another person's world and inquire in how it is for them without assuming we know. Um, and what quite common descriptions mean for them, uh, you know, we, all sorts of magic can happen. Um, and another example is, you know, this man um, said to me, um, I, I, we were literally walking into the counselling room for our first meeting and he said to, he stopped, he's walking in the door, hadn't said a, really a word to me other than hello and he said to me, I'm on a journey to wellness, um, if you can't join me on it, I don't want anything to do with you and he, he spat out the words like someone who was backed right up against the corner. And, you know, I, I agreed that I would join him on this journey to wellness. And then what, uh, over the course of a number of conversations, you know, I asked him about, I asked him to tell me a little bit about the journey. I was curious about what wellness was for him. And I discovered that he was a, um, a well-known healer and that for him and his world, there was no way for him to die with dignity. And so we had to... I had to, uh, we had these conversations where I was inquiring further and further and further into his beliefs to find a way that he could die within his world. So I think if we can enter into another person's world, at, you know, without judgment and just be curious, um, we can discover all sorts of things and co-evolve together meaning. Yeah. It's a long answer, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. We're enjoying listening to, to what you're sharing. Um, I found the section that, where you speak about creating space for silent stories. Um, you say that as practitioners, we know that therapeutic practice embraces complexity and, and the shades of the everyday life. Teen mm. lines and binary thinking are replaced by the somewhat and the both and. So every mm. story a person tells us has the potential to turn any assumptions or previous understandings we hold upside down and they often contain more beauty. I think that um, uh, what, what that makes me really think of is, you know, our language when we're working with people who are very unwell and how um, I, I'm thinking of these shades of grey and um, uh, language with movement that takes very very small steps you know um, and, and can you imagine the thought of um, uh, I th you, you know uh, when we're having some of these conversations in the tender places in people's lives really um, uh, stepping in carefully um, uh, yeah yeah. Did I? Uh, I'm sorry. I just can't. I'm a, bit, a little bit of a blank. What? What? What is the illustration um, that I, I used? What? What is the story after that quote, Nikki? Um, story illustrates how I might support a couple in their preferred relationship with illness and death, where they mm. do not want to openly talk about dying. Okay. And then okay. you speak about. Um, Okay, a but, young, um, young woman called Marie and Andy. Okay. But what I was referring to in that is, is this idea of really getting into another person's world. I mentioned um, the man who I'll call James, who was on a journey to wellness in order to um, develop a, a story of dying that preserved his dignity and ways of thinking about himself. I needed to use... The language of his world and it was a very distinctive world and that uh, with that couple they were very into sort of looking after their bodies and using um, uh, healthy foods and vitamins and so on and they didn't want to use 
directly the language of death and dying, but we did talk about his dying, but we did it in the way that was comfortable for them. So I guess it's not imposing language, but asking people and finding out how do they want to talk about this. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm sure there's some people here with lots of experience who'll have some thoughts about that. Yeah. So it sounds as if um, staying away from prescriptive um, mm -hmm. types of conversation. Mm -hmm. There are so many prescriptions about a right way to die that are often, you know, the air we breathe and really taken for granted. And in fact, people can be imposing these ideas on themselves and, um, you know, having themselves doing it wrong. Um, it, it, you know, but if we can um, examine these ideas with curiosity and ask people what that the ideas are to them and also what matters to them, they can then weigh things up and think, you know, is this right for me? Is this the way I want to go about this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Sasha, is there a question that you might, to, you might like to put out there to um, everybody who's with us that they might like to answer in the chat line? Uh, the chat box or um, one or two people in person? Do you have a question for the group? Oh, I'm, very, I, I'm really curious about um, some of the, the cultural prescriptions that you come up against, um, you know, that have people thinking that they've got to go about the end of their life in particular ways. I mean, I've mentioned the idea of fighting and being positive in my culture, but um, Perhaps you've come across some other ideas about uh, that, that, that um, you know, highly influential in your work. I'd be really interested to see and hear from you. There's a chat there. So while people might be putting that in the, in the chat box, I think for a lot of us who are involved in pastoral narrative work, there's obviously the, the, the assumptions around... Um, living a life of, of, of Christian faith and the prescriptions around that. You know, that, that if we give up hope um, or we don't stay positive, that we are almost going against um, church prescriptions. But what is this hope? You know, could you tell me a little bit more about the hope? Hope can mean many, many mm. things. Um, yeah. You know, if, if we were to pull apart the threads of hope for you, uh, uh, there might be some parts of this hope that are incredibly important to hold close, but there might be other bits that you think, oh no, that isn't quite a fit with me, you know? I mean, yeah. it doesn't have to be an all or nothing, does it? This is the shades yeah. of grey. Exactly. Yeah, or... Um, yeah. Does anyone have any thoughts about that? Please feel free to use the chat box or um, unmute yourself. I'm not able to see everybody on the screen, but please feel free. Hmm. Can you describe a story of an instance where you came across a patient with denial that was too, too tough to crack? Does denial sometimes play a good role? I guess the first thing is, what, well, what do we mean by denial? You know, do, do, do I meet people who don't want to speak about death directly? Yes, I do. Uh, but what, but um, I've never met someone uh, who didn't know what was happening to them. But um, the, the, the de it's all in the detail, isn't it? How, how do they... How do we want to go to, uh, to go about talking about this? And I'm interested in talking about it in ways that fit with them, not an imposing a, a, a way that they should be in relationship to what's happening with them. So I would never want to crack anybody. What, what I want to do is get curious about how they want to do it and what, what their understanding is. Um, and if we mean by denial someone not engaging directly 100% of the time with the fact that they've got a life-ending illness, yes, it does play a good role. People tell me, if I ask them about their relationship with what's happening to them, 
um, they, they'll say that um, the hope or um, whatever it might be is allowing them to live day by day or live in, live in a way that's meaningful for them. And they might say to me as we get to know each other, you know, that um, they do know what's happening to them, but they prefer not to think about it all the time or they only want to think about it in this way or at this time. So absolutely, I think not engaging all the time can be very helpful to people. Are there times when we can, yeah, yeah, there are. And how can we identify? I guess it's by asking, isn't it, what a person's preferred relationship is with what's going on with them and uh, what matters to them and you know how do they want to do this? What I would say, because I have been um, uh, turning myself inside out a little bit about this, uh, in my read, you know, I've been reading and thinking about this because of this work I did with that man was I didn't leave it just with that he was on a journey to wellness and that he was going to live. I thought that that it was potentially very risky that um, that uh, I was worried that he would lose dignity when he realized that he was dying. I'm not saying that this is the right way to do it or not, because I really have thought a lot about this. Well, so why did I introduce, why did I ask him, um, take it further um, and, and uh, ask him what, what he made of what was going on? And, and th that was the reason. But I wasn't trying to, I was still taking very small steps within his world, is what I would say because it can, the people here who are working in palliative care will know that when someone dies suddenly, it can be a terrible shock and it can be a terrible shock for family and bad things can happen to them that might not have happened if they had been a little bit prepared. So um, it's this balance of finding a way that a person can be ready for what might be intolerable, um, but within their understanding, yeah. I have seen. Billy, Billy asks um, the, the people want to leave a legacy. She's seen the people want to leave legacies. Yeah, uh, um, I'm, Sally, I'm not quite sure what you're um, getting at with that. Um, but, but, but that people, um, uh, we can inquire about how that people want to be remembered. Is that? what you're getting at perhaps, or um, uh, sometimes I sit around and um, uh, with families and actually ask people both how they want to be remembered and family members, you know, what stories are you going to tell? And, and we can have quite a laugh about that, believe it or not, and it, or it can be very, very beautiful. Um, but yeah, no, people um, have different ways that they want to leave legacies. I don't know if you've come across ethical wills. There's some beautiful books on it. And I sometimes do some ethical will interviews where I record the interview and interview people about what they, what kind of legacy they want to leave. Did someone say? I was thinking also in the time of, of the HIV pandemic that um, we had mothers who knew they were going to die and they made like memory boxes with their children um, with photographs and, and anything they wanted the children to find or maybe a letter for their 21st birthday, something like that. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We, we do memory boxes too. And of course, there were all the, the beautiful quilts too in the AIDS epidemic. I don't know if you did that here in South Africa, but yeah. Yeah. And of course, there, there are many legacies around um, writing and letters as well. Jacqueline writes, can you share your experience on how to break the terminal or the bad news to the patients mm. and how you share the dying news to the caregivers or family? Now, um, the diagnosis is probably going to be um, uh, uh, news that the, uh, an oncologist or um, uh, some kind of other doctor gives. But having said that, sometimes people don't really accept it at that time or hear it. And I have been asked to um, break news to people and also, or they've checked with me, they haven't really believed it and they've developed a relationship with me and 
um, they'd chosen to talk about it at that time. And um, I can think back to actually a woman, a, quite a young woman in our hospice who was sent from the hospital. And I think actually the hospital staff had just found it intolerable to tell her that her cancer had returned and that she had very short weeks to live. And she was in the hospice dying and I was the only person who really knew her. And our doctors said to me, look, we need to tell her. Um, she doesn't know, would you do it? And I said I would because I knew her and I thought that it would be better for me. And um, so I think, again, you know, it takes place inside a relationship, doesn't it? Um, where someone feels really seen and heard. And um, I often ask people, what's their understanding of uh, where they're at? Do you do that? I, I check with them what their understandings are and um, uh, how, how they think they're going. And mostly people have quite a, a sense, don't they? Unless it's something really new. Um, with that woman, um, I had to tell her that, um, the bad news. And um, yeah, I, I don't have, I know that there are some mnemonics and ways of doing this. I tend to do it with great care. Um, I use a lot of checking questions. Um, well, by that I mean, you know, how are we going with this conversation? Um, uh, you know, I might do some summarizing of my understanding of where we've got to. And I use David Epstein's polite entry ways. Would it be okay if I asked you a few questions about that? Could you help me understand? May I ask? So, um, you know, with great care, I'd be interested, Jacqueline, to know um, if you have any thoughts about that. Um, yeah. So maybe while Jacqueline's considering that, there's a question from Jackie um, about special ways you would support adolescents. Mm. It's really tough for younger family members, isn't it? I don't work with um, adolescents who are unwell, but I do work with them as part of families and meet with them when they're grieving or uh, if they've got a parent who's unwell. Um, I think so much of this work is about meeting people where they're at, isn't it? And um, uh, with adolescents, I think we need to up, change things up a little bit and do things in the way that they do it. Perhaps there's someone who specialises in working with adolescents who might like to um, talk. I think one of the really hard things for some of the young people that I meet with is... Um, that their peers don't actually um, have much life experience of people dying. And, and that might be different in different parts of the world. I don't know, but the, the, certainly the young people that I meet, their peers often don't know what to say or how to support them. And that, that can be different. Um, so they can be isolated or their friends can be invited in particular ways to, um, uh, to support them, they can, you know, uh, get a little bit of guidance and we, we can invite them into that. Um, uh, and of course, groups um, can be very helpful. Um, I don't know, maybe someone in the group might have some more particular ideas about that. Uh, I think it's pretty difficult, though. Often, um, We'll do some sessions. Uh, I, I see many different constellations of families. So I might um, see a family together. I might see a couple um, together most often, but I might also see people individually at different times. And also I'm part of a, a team of narrative therapists and we will at times use each other as well because it may be more helpful that um, families see someone different too. And with adolescents, that might that might be one thing that might be helpful. Um, yeah. You got any other thoughts, Nikki? Mm. Yeah, and uh, there we go. Somebody's added here. Claire, I've done some research with bereaved adolescents, and I was really struck by what you said about choice of language. That was the main finding of my research: was to give them a choice. Oh, gosh. Um, I think it's so important, but it's so nice to know that someone's done some research on that. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I can remember having a whole conversation with a young person actually about um, using the language of death and dying. She preferred to start with to use um, language like passed on and passed away. And then she felt that people didn't get her and they didn't get the agony of loss. And we had this conversation where she decided that she wanted a change to say that her father had died because it better represented the, the pain that she was going through. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm just wondering if there are any more questions for Sasha? Any more thoughts? Um, right. Yeah. I treated a mother of a girl who was about 10 years old. The mother had cancer, but it was in complete denial, claiming that God was going to heal her. She refused mm. to tell her daughter that she was dying. I feared the crisis that the girl would have when she did die. This would likely cause an existential crisis for her daughter. That was terrible. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It isn't that tough. Um, and you, like me, um, would usually be working with people who have uh, miracle beliefs uh, um, that they're going to be cured. I'd usually have one or two people at any one time. I have written a story called Insurance Policies for Miracle Cures that actually where I was in a bit of that situation too. And it's really hard, that juggle of supporting other family members and um, uh, also trying to find a way with the person and res also respecting their beliefs. It's, it is tough. It is because uh, when someone dies it, 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 uh, or when they have a life ending illness, it doesn't just affect one person, it affects everybody. This is truly systemic work. Yeah. Yeah. Thoughts yeah. of the mother of her daughter. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, now they're coming in. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I, I, the mother I, I, of the daughter losing her and growing up without her was too much for yeah. the mother to face. Yeah, yeah. no, I've, I've illustrated some practice where I, I show that sort of juggle. And another example of that is also with couples. I see a lot where one person wants to live with and is accepting that perhaps they're going to die and they've decided that they don't want to have any more chemotherapy because they've been told that... Um, it's not helping anyway, and it's just making them fatigued. And the other partner is desperate for them to do absolutely everything. So that's actually a scenario, you know, that I would see quite often. And that's a real example of working with what's behind, in narrative therapy, we call it the absent but implicit, but the values that sit behind these expressions of distress and bringing those together. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, writes. Thank you. Very interesting. Adolescents are going through so much change and their brain yeah. functions very differently. Response yeah. is very different. Yeah. Um, Terry writes, how do you work with people with COVID-19? And I know we were mm. chatting about that before we started. Mm. Just, um, I'm not I sure. might need to come to you about that. I was saying to yes. Nikki, only 27 people in New Zealand have died from COVID. We've had a very different experience of the pandemic and I think it's it will be next year when we really discover what much of what the world's been going through so um, I haven't worked with anyone with COVID. Um, I've worked with family members um, of people who are connected to people who have died of COVID overseas but I haven't worked with anyone with COVID. Yeah, yeah. And then Carrie I mentioned, so, oh gosh, I've just gone through this with a person in hospice here too. Mm -hmm. mm. Could I share something that I'm really fascinated about? Mm, um, might, this might be of interest to all of you. Um, I've been reading um, the work of Todd May, who's a philosopher, and he's written a book called A Significant Life. And um, uh, the reason I read it was David Epstein actually, he said to me, Sasha, this reminds me of your practice. You really got to read this book. And if David tells you something, it's a good idea to do it. So I <laughs> really read it. <laughs> and anyway, I was fascinated by Todd's um, description about living meaningfully. And he talks about um, what we are engaged with and then how we go about what we're engaged with is giving us a sense of living meaningfully over time. So if I'm 
passionate about my work, how I go about it over time, if it if the how I go about it expresses some kind of virtue, uh, that then that can give my life meaning. And so when I looked at all my transcripts, because I do a lot of recording and transcribing, I could see that I was inquiring into what, pe- what mattered to people in their life and how they went about it. And um, I was tracking, say, compassion through a person's life and even through the generations, how it had been passed down. And also as, as asking legacy questions, you know, how, how, how to parents, you know, how have they then passed this value um, to their children and how does it show up in their lives? And it, it, it's something that I'm really focusing on at the moment is um, a practice that gives people a sense of living more meaningfully. And you'll notice that that's different from the meaning of life or uh, what gives us all meaningful. It's a ve- he's talking about something very personal. Um, these themes in our lives of, of our values. And, you know, they kind of get lost in our capitalistic, materialistic uh, societies, don't they? You know, uh, but perhaps some of you are much more connected to that and to values and um but the, um, yeah, so this is a sort of a type of questioning that I'm really pursuing, and I'm kind of interested in whether other people are and uh, focus on how people how you can give people a sense of living meaningfully, because um, one of the really powerful things about this focus is that if you're focus tracking um, narrative values or these virtues, um, they don't require a well body, and so in highlighting these values, um, it gives people a way of responding, even when they're very, very unwell. Uh, so yeah, Todd May's significant life. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's a lot of philosophy, but um, I've, I've written two stories where I've actually sort of uh, pu- pulled out the, the, those sorts of bits, but I don't know if that's of interest to anyone else, but of course, it's not the work of, uh, of a moment. You know, what gives us a sense of living meaningfully it occurs over time. These are themes in our lives. But tracking, I was talking to one woman, gorgeous woman, who believed that she was a failure and her life was a failure. And um, I was tracking her integrity, actually. And she said to me, can you follow this? And I was tracking her integrity and compassion rather than a chronological story. So it was quite, you know, I hadn't lost my track at all. But, but, you know, she was sort of all enthusiastic, but couldn't quite believe that this made sense. But I mean, is that is that something that is of interest? Absolutely. I think I'm reminded of... Um... The, the little um, constellation drawing where we speak about narrative is a connection of stories woven together over time. Yes, yes. So we and we link these stories together to form narratives, and from these narratives we develop certain descriptions of ourselves. So mm. if we're um, a person, if we can track stories of integrity, we, we become a person who's living with integrity, mm. and. That description really matters because it opens up new possibilities for action, doesn't it? Yeah. Our identities are formed not from inside ourselves, but from the reflections that we see in the eyes of our beholders. If Mm. someone tells us their story and we reflect it back to them with what we notice from the story, that is the only way that they will be able to see themselves. So yes. the idea of, of our identities are socially constructed, I guess. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, they're not a, a fixed truth, are they? Yeah. I mean, this woman who I, who described her life as a failure, you know, she, when we examined the shaping of the stories of her life um, and through the, the, the lenses we uh, and unraveled and pulled apart the threads, what we had was... Um, a story of somebody who really acted with compassion and, and integrity. She'd left quite a high status job and she regarded it as a failure. But when I unpicked it, she'd actually left because she didn't want to shame other people. Mm. Um, and that that version of the story had not been available to her. Mm. So, yeah. 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 
Any other questions for Sasha? I'm loving these questions. All right. Doesn't seem to be right now. I'm sure if we had long, much more time, we would have um, a lot more um, questions and conversation going. Um, so I think perhaps we we can start drawing this to a close, Sasha. Um, mm -hmm. If it's okay with you, um, and there are people who would like copies of some of your articles, would you be happy with us um, sharing those? Um, Absolutely. Deconstructing denial and some of the other ones that, that you've written. Um, and if there's anything that you think may be of interest to us, please, please forward it to me. And, mm. Mm. It's a pleasure. Yes, so there are lots of um, illustrations of practice um, that are just freely available on ResearchGate. And there are quite a number of, I, I'm, I'm very into sort of showing practice rather than being all theoretical. And I love this idea of writing collaborative stories with the people in them. So yeah, my writings, but like, you know, different. Mm -hmm. And then I thought I, I the, the, Ending, when you end your article on deconstructing denial, you speak of beyond the veil of denial. And I thought we would just end, if it's okay with you, with um, two paragraphs or two short paragraphs that you write down there. You say that when we cast aside prescriptions of a right way to die, we create the possibility of a space to be alongside a family as they contend with some of the struggles that may accompany approaching death. When we focus our energy on entering another person's world with curiosity, bending our attention persistently and compassionately towards trying to understand their experience, we cast aside the veil of denial and enter a realm of many possibilities. Mm -hmm. And so just a, a deep, deep sense of gratitude for spending your Friday evening with us and to everybody that's joined us. Um, it's really been wonderful to, to have you. Thank you so much for your contributions, everybody. And sorry about the freezing. It's really okay, it's gone now. <laughs> All right, so thank you, everybody. And Sasha, we look forward to some more conversations with you in the in the coming year. Thank you very much for having me, Nikki, and thank, thank you, everybody. You. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Okay. Right. Well, enjoy your weekend, everybody, and um, it's been good to be with you. Take care. And how would you say goodbye in Maori, Sasha? You could say um, mate wow, see you later, or kakite ano. Kakite ano.